0: Good morning, Belfast, good afternoon, Abu Dhabi, and good evening, Nanjing from Washington, D.C. I'm Ethan Plotkin, and this is Intrigue Out Loud, your go-to audio guide to the globe. On today's show, I'm joined by Intrigue co-founder John Fowler to discuss undersea security and why Poland is so interested in Russian interference. It's all coming up.
1: Morning, John. How are you? I am doing well, Ethan. Now, I know you hate weather chat, but i got to tell you, it's beautiful up here in Chicago, finally. uh, It's warm and summer has come not a moment too soon. Nice of you to talk about the weather and not care at all about how my day has been
0: going. (laughs) So that's uh, par for the course. Par for the course. Uh, (laughs) We are talking today about undersea cables and pipelines, which sounds sounds incredibly boring. Uh, But honestly, this is a story I've been eager to talk about on the podcast for a while now.
1: Yeah, me too, even though it does, I agree, sound a little boring. But uh, these things quite literally make our modern life possible. Uh, We rarely, if ever, think about them, um, which is a good thing. Uh, But what I love about them is that they're sort of like the most obvious invention, right? Like, oh, let's just like lay some wires across the ocean. But in reality, they are complete and utter engineering marvels. Well, so let's get our definitions straight.
0: I mean, what are we referring to when we talk about undersea cables, and pipelines. What what sort of stuff do these things carry?
1: Well, pipelines are pretty simple. So we can start there. They carry, you know, liquids, oil, gas, sometimes they carry water from one place to another. Um, usually made of steel, vary in diameter, but typically about a meter wide or so. You know, if you think oil pipeline, like stereotypical oil pipeline, right. you, you get the picture. Um But but then you have undersea cables, and and these carry information. In the past, they were telegraphs. Now the modern fibre optic cables actually transport light. Um, Around 95% of intercontinental communications are carried on these submarine comms cables, Um, and that's compared to about 3% that come from space satellites. Um, You know, these systems are the internet. You have to just, it's as simple as that. So when I said a second ago that modern life isn't possible without them, that's what I meant. Um, And and today there's about one and a half million kilometers of undersea cables that crisscross the globe. And for the most part, they're no more than around 25 mils in diameter. So really, really tiny.
0: Tiny. Well, so let's do the math then here. We've got this critical piece of infrastructure that you say modern societies can't exist without they're extremely geographically disparate a million and a half kilometers spread across the globe and they're about the width of a garden
1: hose mm. sounds like a recipe for disaster doesn't it just i mean <laughs> undersea cables tick all the boxes of the of the juicy target list for bad actors you know they're indispensable they're really difficult to defend and they're very easy to destroy um, you will no doubt remember the Nord Stream pipeline mystery that happened last September, when a, a yet unidentified group of saboteurs blew up part of the pipeline, which once carried about 10% of Europe's annual gas supply from Russia down to down to a processing plant in northern Germany. We don't know who did it, despite plenty of people speculating, but it all uh, all the signs seem to have pointed to, you know, a, a well trained state actor rather than a group of amateur saboteurs. It is fortunate that the gas pumped through that pipeline had started to slow considerably before Russia invaded Ukraine, because if that attack had occurred before that invasion, it would have been an absolute disaster for Europe. So you can see how serious uh, and how critical these infrastructure bits of infrastructure are.
0: Right. And Nord Stream is a, is a pipeline. What about these undersea cables, these like telephone wires that we're talking about? Those seem
1: probably even more vulnerable. Yeah, I think that's right. They are incredibly vulnerable. I mean, they're encased in protective layers, but... These things can fall victim to all sorts of disruptions, including natural disasters like earthquakes and undersea mudslides. Um, sometimes fishing trawlers or ship anchors can actually accidentally damage them as well. So, you know, for the most part, I think the disruptions to those cables are accidental. But on rare occasions, uh, there have been intentional acts of sabotage by, you know, for example, disgruntled fishermen or people looking for scrap metal near the shore. Um, in fact, in 2007, the British counterintelligence uh, agency, or let's say establishment, foiled uh, an al-Qaeda plot to disconnect the entirety of Great Britain from the internet. I remember that, uh, that scrap
0: metal searcher. I think that was a, it was a woman in the country of Georgia uh, who was picking at a, a cable and accidentally cut off the internet to the entire country of Armenia. <laughs> uh, <but laughs> bad day. Bad day for everyone involved. But but those are all non-state actors. I mean, do we know of any attempted sabotage by governments, state actors?
1: Right. I, I think none that we know of, but then we wouldn't know about them, right? We, we might have to wait 50 or 100 years um, for the files to be declassified to, to to know the reality of whether that's true or not. But... What we can say is that as recently as February, a Chinese fishing vessel destroyed a cable linking a small Taiwanese island's internet to the mainland, and and the ship sped away when Taiwan's coast guard started to give chase to it. So, you know, it's not necessarily clear that it was intentional, uh, but Taiwan certainly accused the Chinese government of carrying out the attack, you know, which is plausible uh, as a prelude to a wider assault on undersea cables um, in the event of a war between China and Taiwan. Um, You know, I think it's... Interesting to remember that some of these underwater cables are over 160 years old. Um, for example, in 1898, during the Spanish-American War, taking you way back here, Ethan, um, a telegraph wire between the Philippines and Hong Kong was actually cut by your mob, the American forces. <laughs> okay. Apologies.
0: Apologies for that one. But <laughs> the, the point here is that the, the state-sponsored sabotage here is nothing new. But for me, I'm outraged that in a case of a reciprocal attack by the Philippines, I might not be able to get my Netflix fix, John. So what's being done
1: about this? <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I share that outrage, to be honest with you. I, I, I do. But you will be very pleased to know, in that case, that uh, many countries are now starting to take this, uh, this seriously. Underwater security, under sea security, I suppose you could call it. They're starting to take it very seriously, especially after the the Nord Stream attack last year. Earlier this month, the UK and Norway agreed to partner on undersea security, um, and France has been investing in drones and robots and submarines um, to kind of patrol all of their offshore infrastructure. Um, And of course, there's this general sense that since these systems are so interconnected, they're kind of protected by the theory of mutually assured destruction, right? The idea that if you cut my cable, I'll cut yours and we'll all be worse off. Um, And no one wants to end up in in a reciprocal battle over internet access. But on the other hand, I think Russia's invasion of Ukraine has revealed um uh, a lot of asymmetries in how far certain countries are willing to go uh, to get what they want, particularly in the course of a war. Um you know, it only takes one party to want to burn the whole system or or in this case cut all the cords uh, for the whole network to become a real vulnerability. So you know, I think if a state actor wanted to send a wire cutting submersible to the bottom of the ocean floor there's there's not a lot that people can really do about it until it's too late. So I uh, maybe maybe you want to pre uh, pre-download your Netflix queue there. Ethan.
0: <laughs> Today's show is brought to you by the Daily Upside. The trends shaping the investment landscape are moving faster than ever before. Fortunately, we have the Daily upside. This free newsletter is a veritable gold mine of deep insights on biased reporting and is packed with great analysis. It was founded by a team of Wall Street insiders, bankers, and scholars, and delivers industry-level analysis with absolutely zero BS. So join 950,000 subscribers, including the team at International Intrigue, who trust The Daily Upside every day. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. All right, welcome back. So, John, we're heading to Eastern Europe next.
1: Yeah, I suspect our listeners will uh, think there are no surprises there because it's certainly one of our favourite destinations. But we are stopping just shy of Ukraine uh, in Poland today, actually, uh, where President Andrzej Duda just signed into law a controversial bill that would create a nine-member commission to investigate Russia's influence on Polish politics. Now, it's been framed as a way to limit foreign interference in Poland, which is on its face understandable given Russia has a penchant for meddling in uh, countries around the world. I mean, we have to recall Moldova earlier this year and, of course, the U.S. in 2016. Um, So, you know, on its face, this isn't that surprising. Yeah.
0: Moldova immediately came to my mind, too. So, I mean, what's the issue here?
1: Yeah. Well, OK. So the first thing I think to note about this is that this commission has quite a bit of power. All of its verdicts are final and, and they can't be appealed. And all state law enforcement agencies are required to cooperate and abide by its rulings. So it's immediately more powerful than any court or, or law enforcement body that exists in the country today. Plus, this commission has the power to bar anyone from office for ten years if it finds that they've improperly uh, interacted with Russia. And and that's the big catch, Ethan. Since Poland's top opposition figure, Donald Tusk, who is a central a centrist, and people might remember him because he's the former president of the European Council, um, he's been fairly uncredibly accused of cozying up to Russia during his time as Prime Minister of Poland from 2007 to 2014. So lots of critics of this new commission say it's a way to eliminate Tusk before elections later this year. Now, this might be a good me- moment to just ch- uh, mention, Ethan, that I had, a, I had an Uber driver from Poland just last week, uh, and we got to chatting politics as, as one does, and, he's, and he specifically mentioned this, this new law. Um, he seemed like a fairly conservative kind of chap, but he was no fan of his country's government um, and what he saw as them limiting Polish people's freedom. A direct quote from him was, these people and I won't use the word he actually used to describe him. It begins with F, as you might imagine. But he said they're trying to turn Poland into Russia. So, you know, I, I found that pretty interesting.
0: You actually, as a resident of Chicagoan, have quite a bit of credibility speaking on behalf of the Polish community. Some of the best pierogies on earth <laughs> it's true. in Chicago. That's true. <laughs> John, I can't say I find all of this all that surprising. I mean, we we heard for years before the war in Ukraine that Poland's political system was sliding away from democracy. It seems to just be a continuation of
1: that. Yeah, I think that's fair. Poland's political landscape was was much more prominent in certainly in the Western media before the war started in Ukraine. Um, you know, the the kind of narrative was that the leaders of Poland and Hungary were weakening institutions, consolidating control over the judiciary, taking over state media channels, um, and that the European Union wasn't really able to meet that challenge and reprimand them because they've been prote- they sort of protected each other from from retribution. Um, But I think a lot of that has kind of slipped off the main pages since the Russo-Ukraine war began. You know, Hungary, I think, is still a bit more on the mind of pro-democracy Western lawmakers because it's largely stayed out of the Western alliance during the war. But the status of Poland's democracy has, I think, completely fallen off the radar because they have been such an integral, enthusiastic supporter of Ukraine's war effort, which I think has won them a lot of favor in Western capitals. I mean, don't forget that Biden delivered his his speech uh, on the one year anniversary of the war in Warsaw. So, you know, that's, that's telling.
0: I'm guessing this could change that.
1: It's hard to know. Um, I think it's fair to say Western leaders aren't happy. Uh, the U S state department called on Poland to ensure the law wasn't, uh, and I'll quote here, invoked or abused in ways that could affect the perceived legitimacy of elections. Uh, and the EU said something, said something similar. Look, the war has been repeatedly framed as a battle between autocracy and democracy by many Western leaders, foremost amongst them Joe Biden, of of course. But I think a lot of people or a lot of countries around the world don't necessarily see it that way. They're choosing to support one side or another side or stay neutral for a whole range of different reasons. It's not quite as binary as the US might like. Uh, you know, In Poland's case, they're not so concerned about democracy as they are concerned about the spectre of a Russian invasion, hence curtailing democratic freedoms to try and prevent that Russian influence. I guess the lesson is that even though the war in Ukraine and competition with China has pushed a lot of other other dynamics off the front pages of those newspapers, it doesn't mean they've disappeared, right? And the big risk here is that this commission, designed, remember, to prevent Russian interference, might actually be so divisive that it helps Russia.
0: Interesting. Very interesting, John. Wow, thanks for sharing all that. You're very welcome as always, Ethan. Terrific stuff. <laughs> Here are a couple other stories we're tracking today. China turned down a planned meeting between U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and China's Defense Minister Li Shang-Fu in Singapore later this week. China's U.S. Embassy demanded that sanctions against Li, which were first issued in 2018... Be lifted before any meeting takes place. Former Salvadoran President Mauricio Funes has been sentenced to 14 years in prison in absentia for negotiating with criminal gangs to establish a truce in 2012. Current President Nayib Bukele also allegedly negotiated with gangs at the beginning of his presidency, a charge he denies. And that's going to do it for me. By the way, did you know there was once a Caribbean megastate, including Barbados, Trinidad and Tobago, Jamaica, and about a dozen other island nations? Honestly, neither did I. But check out the International Intrigue newsletter to see why it fell apart. In the meantime, I'm Ethan Plotkin. See you on Friday.